Good evening, everybody. Thank you all for coming. Um, my name's Sam, and I'm the president of Christian Science here at Sheffield. Um, so we're part of the University of Sheffield Christian Union. And uh, what we do, basically, is we, we like to meet up and have discussions about issues related to science and faith. And every now and again, we put on a tour like this. Tonight, we've invited a philosopher to come and speak for us. Uh, he's come all the way from Southampton, and we're very pleased to have him. Um, he's the assistant professor in communication and worldview at Gimla Colvin College in Norway. He also works for the Damaris Trust, and he's author of several books, including C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheists and A Faithful Guide to Philosophy. So, if you could join me in welcoming Peter S. Williams. Thank you very much. Well, it's interesting for me uh, to be back here because uh, way back in the last millennium, would you believe, I did my MA in philosophy here, spending a lot of time uh, in the Arts Tower, going up and down and occasionally around uh, in the Paternoster Lift uh, and seeing the wonderful views of the rainbows over the moors from, uh, from the top of the tower as well. So it's nice to be back uh, and to have an opportunity to engage in some of the deepest issues of life, the universe, and everything. Now, uh, at various points in this evening's talk, I'm going to be uh, criticising quite heavily certain viewpoints. And I want to just start off by emphasising that um, when I criticise those viewpoints, I'm criticising the viewpoint, not the viewpoint holder. Uh, so you may find me critiquing views that perhaps some of you in this hall hold. And I just want to assure you at the get-go that this is not a personal uh, attack. My interest as a philosopher is in the ideas and whether they work or not, whether they're wise or not. Uh, and I will put my view upon that forthrightly. Uh, and you, of course, are free to agree or disagree and come back during the question time uh, and treat this as the opening gambit uh, in a dialogue. So my theme is uh, science, scientism, and the knowledge of God. You may have read Stephen Hawking's latest book, co-authored uh, with Leonard Mlodnow, or Mlodnov, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce his co-author's name, uh, but since Hawking has his names in big capital letters on the front cover... I'll just refer to, to Hawking as we go through. And he starts off uh, this book uh, asking some, some typical philosophical questions. Questions like, um, where did all this come from? Uh, did the universe need a creator? And he says that traditionally these kind of questions are questions for philosophy. But immediately goes on to say that philosophy is dead. Uh, sorry, we have to close down the philosophy department uh, here. Uh, scientists, he says, have become the bearers of the torch of discovery in our quest for knowledge. Uh, and as we'll see, this kind of viewpoint seems to represent an increasingly uh, put-across viewpoint, at least at the popular level in our culture, uh, that science uh, bears the torch of, of uh, discovery in our quest for knowledge. And exclusively, science does so. As uh, John Lennox, a philosopher of science from Oxford University, says, Hawking's statement about philosophy, being dead and so on, is not a statement of science. It's a metaphysical statement 
about science. Therefore, his statement that philosophy is dead contradicts itself. And it doesn't get any worse in philosophy than being self-contradictory. Uh, that really is uh, game over for a viewpoint. So, you may also have seen, even if you haven't uh, read the book, the uh, front cover of the Times that came out. Hawking obviously has some good publicists working for his publisher. Front page of the Times newspaper, Hawking, God did not create universe. And there's uh, some small print under there as well that may be too small for you to read, but it, it says uh, something along the lines of uh, the Big Bang uh, didn't uh, create the universe, you don't need that, uh, the laws of physics can do it. Uh, which, when you think about it, is a little less impressive than the headline title of Hawking, God did not create universe, because what he basically ends up saying in the subtitle there is, uh, a thing, the Big Bang, uh, can be explained by other things, laws of physics, that remain unexplained. Um, the, the headline and the actual content of the story are somewhat at variance, uh, one might feel. It was indeed the ancient Greek philosopher Parmenides of Ela in the 5th century BC who enunciated the metaphysical principle that from nothing, nothing comes. Or you might put it, you can't get an effect without a cause. And Hawking seems, at first glance, to agree with Parmenides. He says, bodies such as stars or black holes cannot just appear out of nothing. But a whole universe can. There seems to be suddenly an exception clause for the entire universe. How will Hawking justify making such an exception? By saying this, he says, because gravity shapes space and time, it allows space-time to be locally stable, but globally unstable. It is on the scale of the entire universe, the positive energy of matter can be balanced by the negative gravitational energy, and so there is no restriction on the creation of the whole universe out of nothing. Well, that's rather like saying this, if I put it into an analogy. I have... Uh, one bank account that is £100 in credit. And I have another bank account that's £100 in debt. Now, the mathematical sum of those two accounts is, of course, zero. And zero is another way of saying nothing, isn't it? Uh, therefore, I can get something for nothing... Because despite having zero money and no bank accounts, I can buy things using my non-existent in-credit account. You see, just because the mathematical sum of two measured things is zero, that does not entail that what you have summed is literally no thing. Lennox, again, uh, who wrote a, a little pamphlet of a book uh, critiquing Hawking's book, uh, he says, uh, Hawking says that the universe comes from a nothing that turns out to be a something. And then he says that the universe creates itself 
And his notion that a law of nature, gravity, uh, explains the existence of the universe is also self-contradictory, since a law of nature, by definition, surely depends for its own existence on the, the prior existence of the nature it purports to describe. And even if you want to go some sort of platonic route and think of a law of nature as some sort of self-existing abstract object that somehow governs a universe were it to exist physically, concretely, that law of nature you're still conceiving as, as, a, as a concrete, albeit abstract, reality. It's not a nothing, it's a something. So the main conclusion of Hawking's book turns out to be not simply a self-contradiction, says Lennox, which would be disaster enough, but a triple self-contradiction. And philosophers just might be tempted to comment, so that's what comes of saying that philosophy is dead. <laughs> and it's not just people from a theistic viewpoint who make such critiques. I'm not at this stage uh, engaging in a critique of atheism at all, per se. Here's the atheist uh, philosopher of science, Massimo Pigliucci, uh, who says, I don't know what's the matter with physicists these days. It used to be that they were respectful of other branches of knowledge, particularly philosophy. These days, it's much more likely to encounter physicists like Stephen Hawking, who merrily go about dismissing philosophy out of a combination of profound ignorance and hubris. And the latest such is Lawrence Krauss. This is um, American physicist Lawrence Krauss, who recently published a best-selling book called uh, A Universe from nothing. Why there is something rather than nothing. Uh, in an interview uh, dialogue in The Atlantic, uh, the interviewer Ross uh, Anderson tried to kind of summarise Krauss's view in that book. He said this, he said, it sounds like uh, you're arguing that nothing is really a quantum vacuum. And that a quantum vacuum is unstable in such a way as to make the production of matter and space from that vacuum uh, inevitable. But a quantum vacuum has properties. Why should we think of it as nothing? And I think Krauss's response is revealing on this whole issue of the, uh, the overreach of scientism into the realm of philosophy. Krauss responds, well, I don't really give a damn about what nothing means to philosophers. I care about the nothing of reality. And if the nothing of reality is full of stuff, then I'll go with that. Well, fellow atheist Peter Atkins in his book on being certainly wouldn't go down such a route. Atkins firmly states that nothing has no properties and thus does not undergo quantum fluctuations. Or Pigliucci again, summarising a universe for nothing, says that Professor Krauss is essentially engaged in playing a game of bait and switch. So that's a little uh, dipping of our toe into a, a recent popular culture phenomenon of the growth of scientism. I point out that the practice of science itself relies upon various philosophical disciplines, such as logic 
such as ethics, such as the philosophy of science. While scientific observations and theories inevitably, inevitably raise various metaphysical, that is beyond physics, questions that have philosophical answers, whatever those answers may be. I think myself that theism uh, can warrant a philosophy of science that justifies the practice of science. And indeed, historically speaking, there's no question that that is actually what happened, historically speaking, that a theistic worldview undergirded the, uh, uh, the scientific revolution. The controversial question, I think, is this. Can philosophy warrant any theistic answers to any of those metaphysical questions that are raised by science? And we'll come back to that. Let me say a little bit about scientism. And particularly, what we're talking about here is what philosophers of science would call strong scientism. It's the, the philosophical theory that attributes exclusive competency over knowledge to science, to scientific methodology. Philosopher of Science Del Rach says this, science cannot validate either scientific method itself or the presuppositions of that method. Those who claim either that science is competent for dealing with all matters or that science is the only legitimate method for dealing with any matter are seriously confused. So let me make clear at the beginning that when I'm critiquing scientism, I am not critiquing science. Indeed, I would say I am defending science proper. Victor Stenger, the recently deceased new atheist uh, author and physicist, um, is sensitive to this charge of scientism, uh, which is often uh, particularly posed towards the new atheist movement. And he says, critics accuse new atheism of scientism, which is the principle that science is the only means that can be used to learn about the world and humanity. They cannot quote a single new atheist who has said that. Well, maybe not in so many words, but what would you make of an author who made the following set of claims? The author says that faith is belief in the absence of supportive evidence. That science, by contrast, is belief in the presence of supportive evidence. That science does not require, nor does it use, any metaphysics. That reason is just the procedure by which humans ensure that their conclusions are consistent with the theory that produced them, and with the data that test those conclusions. So reason is about self-consistency of our concepts, and that's it. And finally, that being rational just means that when you talk about some subject, the words you use are well-defined, and the statements you make are self-consistent. In other words, you could boil this down accurately, I think, by saying this. This also thinks that reason checks the coherence of our beliefs to show that they might be true, but that there either is or isn't supportive evidence for our beliefs. 
And if there is supportive evidence, then that belief is a scientific belief. And if there isn't supportive evidence, then that belief is a matter of blind faith and probably something to do with religion. Does seem a fair summary of what this person thinks? This is Victor Stenger from his book, The New Atheism. So although he's sensitive to the charge of scientism, it would seem to me that he himself endorses scientism. Peter Atkins is not shy about this. He says in his book on being, I stand by my claim that the scientific method is the only means of discovering the nature of reality. And although its current views are open to revision, the approach, that is, making observations and comparing notes, will forever survive as the only way of acquiring reliable knowledge. Or uh, Alex Rosenberg, in his book The Atheist's Guide to Reality, says uh, he openly embraces the term scientism to describe his worldview and says being scientistic just means treating science as our exclusive guide to reality. We trust science as the only way to acquire knowledge. Richard Dawkins, for him, all beliefs fall into one of two categories. On the one hand, there's what he calls proper evidence-based belief. As he puts it in his book, The Magic of Reality, the only good reason to believe that something exists is if there is real evidence that it does. And that evidence always comes back to our senses one way or another. And on the other hand, there's the improper methodology of blind faith. Faith is believing in something when there literally isn't a scrap of evidence. If there were a scrap of evidence, it wouldn't be faith. <coughs> now, at this point, I cannot resist but quote Alistair McGrath on this subject, who notes that Dawkins' idiosyncratic definition of faith, as by definition a matter of blind, unevidenced faith, is, of course, itself an excellent example of a belief tenaciously held and defended in the absence of evidence, even in the teeth of evidence. Because certainly the classic Christian tradition has always valued rationality. It does not hold that faith involves the abandonment of reason or believing in the teeth of at least overwhelming evidence to the contrary. Let's uh, just spend a few moments analysing this uh, kind of scientific demand of Dawkins that, that every rational belief, to be counted as rational, must be justified by evidence. Otherwise it's blind faith and irrational. You've got to have evidence for your belief to make it a rational belief. Well, that, that truth claim itself can't be justified by evidence. Indeed, that truth claim entails an infinite regress that can never be satisfied. If my belief A, in order to count as rational, has to have some evidence in its favour, call that B, before it's rational, but I apply this principle to everything that I believe, then of course I'll have to apply it to B. I should not believe that B really is evidence or that it really does support A unless I have some evidence for that belief, call that C. And of course, I shouldn't believe that C really exists or that it really points towards the truth of B unless I have some evidence for that belief, call that D. 
and so on, 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 ad infinitum. You cannot satisfy that demand. It's a demand that ultimately undermines the entire scientific project. Scientism, I think, is a profoundly anti-scientific philosophy, therefore. That scientific demand of, of evidence to justify everything you believe, it's also, I think, open to simple and obvious counter-examples. I think if I say um, the law of non-contradiction is true, you just see that by rational intuition, and if you disagree and ask me to give you a good argument for why you should believe me, well, I can't, because any argument I give you would rely upon the law of non-contradiction being true. Um, if I say uh, torturing uh, small babies just for fun is wrong, I hope no one disagrees with me. A little bit more controversially, perhaps, if I say uh, rainbows are beautiful. I think that's true. Um, what evidence can I give you apart from, well, go and have a look at a rainbow and see how it strikes you. you know, it's not a matter of argumentation. Um, these uh, things of rational intuition tend to concern what philosophers would call properly uh, basic uh, beliefs, which are the, the very foundation of our cognitive structure. Uh, and we couldn't do any other activities in life, including science, if we didn't trust various properly basic beliefs on a matter of intuition, as it were. C.S. Lewis, for example, said, you can't produce rational intuition by argument because argument depends upon rational intuition. That is, proof rests upon the unprovable, which just has to be seen. Sam Harris, new atheist author, seems to get this. He says that intuition denotes the most basic, a basic constituent of our faculty of understanding. And while this is true in matters of ethics, it is no less true in science. The traditional opposition between reason and intuition is a false one. Reason is itself intuitive to the core, as any judgment that a proposition is reasonable or logical relies on intuition to find its feet. Absolutely, I agree. In the moral landscape, where unfortunately Harris explicitly contradicts the main thesis of his book, uh, that science can deal with objective morals. Nevertheless, I think it's useful when he says this. Science cannot tell us why, scientifically, we should value human well-being. Science is defined with reference to the goal of understanding the processes at work in the universe. Can we justify this goal scientifically? Of course not. And what evidence would prove that we should value evidence? Another topic that I want to just dip our toes into briefly when it comes to thinking about what is science, and I'll come on to trying to give a bit of a positive definition in a moment, uh, is the whole issue of methodological naturalism. That's a long-winded way of saying that when you do science, you should do it as if a materialistic, naturalistic worldview were true. That you don't have to think that such a worldview is true, but for the purposes of doing science, one should act as if it were true, it were 
uh, Paul de Vries, who distinguished between methodological naturalism as a disciplinary method that is neutral concerning matters like God's existence, for example, and metaphysical naturalism, which is the worldview that denies that there is anything like God. Vries stated the natural sciences are committed to the systematic analysis of matter and energy within the context of methodological naturalism. Such that philosopher Nancy Murphy, for example, says that science, qua science, or science as such, seeks naturalistic explanations. Well, an increasing number of philosophers of science would vehemently disagree with this, including atheist philosophers of science, such as Bradley Monton, who I think has an excellent point when he argues thus. If science really is permanently committed to methodological naturalism, it follows that the aim of science is not generating true theories. Instead, the aim of science would be something like generating the best theories that can be formulated subject to the restriction that those theories are naturalistic. And so Monton argues that science, since it should above all be a search for truth, is better off without being shackled to methodological naturalism. Now in my own works, I've introduced a distinction between what I called hard and soft methodological naturalism. Uh, imagine uh, Sherlock Holmes here, peering over the dead body on the floor next to him, Inspector Lestrade. Um, Holmes suggests that maybe it was a murder, and Lestrade says, Good grief, surely not, Holmes. Surely a, a man of science such as yourself can't possibly break the bounds of methodological naturalism and appeal to something like intentionality or design or purpose in explaining things in science. Well, if hard methodological naturalism is the rule, uh, don't use intelligence as an explanation for anything when doing science. And soft method methodological naturalism is the rule, don't use any explicitly supernatural intelligence as an explanation when doing science. I leave debates about the nature of intelligence to the philosophers. It's a subject called the philosophy of mind. Maybe that will help us. Uh, imagine, must a, must a medical examiner, like the lady in the TV programme Body of Proof, if any of you watches that, must a medical examiner settle the dispute in the philosophy of mind between physicalism and mind-body dualism before they can enter their report to the police on whether or not it was a murder? Well, I think not. I think that's obviously silly to expect that to happen. Um, so, if we followed hard methodological naturalism, which excludes any mention of intelligence, well, that would, and some people would like this, that would exclude, for example, design theory from science. Um, but it would also exclude forensic science. Now, is that a price worth paying? If we adopted soft methodological naturalism, well, that would admit forensic science, because we can appeal to intelligence, 
But we don't have to settle the debate about whether mind-body dualism is true, for example, when we do that. But soft methodological naturalism would also admit design theory into science, whilst leaving discussions about the nature of the designer to the philosophers and theologians. So, thus far, I've been rather negative. I've argued that science should not be confused with scientism, which is self-contradictory and, I think, obviously wrong. And I think science should not be defined, at least in terms of a hard-line methodological naturalism, because that ties us up in knots and means that science isn't a pursuit of truth. But what should science be thought of? This is, of course, an essentially concessive notion within the philosophy of science, so I hear venture where angels fear to tread. Um, but at least in the natural sciences, I think, uh, here's a stab at a definition. It's a first-order discipline which may be practised according to soft methodological naturalism, the primary aim of which is to know as much as we can about physical reality. That is, to, to understand, explain and or predict things in physical reality. It's a first-order discipline. That means that questions about the nature of science, well, those are second-order questions. Questions about science that are part of the philosophy of science, not part of science. It may be practised according to soft methodological naturalism, but I think that the reasons for doing so are, are primarily, at least, pragmatic uh, soft methodological naturalism would mean that people of differing worldviews, such as naturalists and supernaturalists of various kinds, can collaborate on doing what we call science, whilst leaving the disagreements between our worldviews at a metaphysical level for others to get on with. And it's about understanding physical reality. The knowledge of physical reality, of course, doesn't exclude having knowledge of non-physical realities, particularly once you've got rid of the idea that science is the only way to know. Maybe there are lots of other ways to know, including, but perhaps not even limited to, the whole rational intuition of properly basic beliefs. Science is not the same thing as naturalism. And science doesn't encompass every way of knowing or even everything about which we could know, necessarily. That means, for example, that science doesn't encompass knowledge of God, at least if you define it according to soft methodological naturalism. So science doesn't encompass knowledge of God, but it also doesn't exclude the possibility of, of philosophical or even specifically religious knowledge of God because knowledge is not restricted to science that's scientism in other words some of you might recognise that I'm pretty much in agreement with Thomas Aquinas from back in the 13th century of course back then when people talked about science or scientia in the Latin they just meant a, 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 an academic discipline, a field of knowledge scientia just means knowledge Thomas Aquinas called theology the queen of the sciences, the ultimate integrating science, assisted by her handmaiden philosophy. And the area of study that we now call science, a name for it, by the way, which was invented by a vicar, uh, was called natural philosophy. 
So let's come on to that controversial uh, question that I mentioned earlier uh, about going beyond the bounds of science and into the metaphysics and, and what is the, the interaction at that border. The American philosopher William Lane Craig says, the last half century has witnessed a remarkable resurgence of interest in natural philosophy. Uh, it's an area I particularly remember getting uh, interested in when I was doing my MA here and did um, one for one of my courses. My essay was on uh, the cosmological, the metaphysical cosmological argument for the existence of God. Alvin Plantinga, uh, perhaps the world's most renowned philosopher of religion, uh, says that there are a number of reasonably strong arguments for the existence of God. You will gather from that that we tend in philosophy of religion these days not to think in terms of knockdown proofs. There are very few knockdown proofs uh, for anything outside of maths. Um, maybe St. Anselm might have thought of his ontological argument as a knockdown argument for the existence of God. Uh, and even though I think there's something to that argument, I certainly don't think it's a knockdown uh, argument these days. I think it's a, an interesting part of what philosophers would call a cumulative case. A cumulative case argument for God. It's more like the kind of argument one might make in a court of law, where one adduces various pieces of evidence that point in the same direction and cumulatively build up a case that a certain person is guilty or innocent. Bradley Monton, who we've mentioned, uh, says that if the universe had a beginning, then that lends support to what's called the Kalam version of the cosmological argument. Well, there's an if, you'll notice, importantly, in that statement. But the atheist cosmologist Alexander Vilenkin, at a conference celebrating Stephen Hawking's 70th birthday a couple of years ago, uh, gave a lecture on cosmology in the beginning of the universe, which you can find on YouTube. And he stated that all the evidence we have says that the universe had a beginning. Uh, it's quite a strong statement. It's not saying, uh, on balance, the evidence shows that. He's saying, all the evidence we have says the universe had a beginning. Indeed, New Scientist had an editorial and an article reporting on this conference. And the editorial was pretty mind-blowing to me, because those of you who read it will know that the New Scientist is not exactly uh, a bastion of uh, conservative fundamentalist theology. Let's put it that way. Uh, and the editorial said this. The Big Bang is now part of the furniture of modern cosmology. Many physicists have been fighting a rearguard action against it for decades, largely because of its theological overtones. If you have an instant of creation, don't you need a creator? Cosmologists thought they had a workaround. Over the years, they've tried on several different models of the universe that dodged the need for a beginning whilst still requiring a Big Bang. And if you're thinking, well, how on earth would you do that? For example, uh, oscillating models of the universe that say, yes, there was a Big Bang, but that was just the latest in an infinite series of expansions and crunches and bouncing expansions and crunches and so on. Uh, so there was a Big Bang, yes, but there wasn't a beginning because maybe there was an infinite number of Big Bangs and contractions and so on. Um, those models have along with others, been shown that even if it's possible to have a series of Big Bangs, you can't have an infinite 
series of them, so that the series of Big Bangs must still have a beginning at some point. So they've tried on several different models to try and dodge the need for a beginning while still requiring a Big Bang. But recent research has shot them full of holes. It now seems certain that the universe did have a beginning. Without an escape clause, physicists and philosophers must finally answer a problem that's been nagging at them for the best part of 50 years. How do you get a universe, complete with the laws of physics, out of nothing? Where nothing means no thing, not anything. A universal term of negation, uh, rather than um, Lawrence Krauss nothing full of stuff. Well, surely the only way to get anything, or the only way to explain anything, is to get it from something able to give it. If it needs to get it, it needs to get it from something able to give it. Nothing means non-being, not anything. And non-being can't do or give or explain anything. Because it isn't anything. Okay? And no physical, and therefore I would think contingent, reality can possibly explain the existence of all physical reality. Well, if we eliminate non-being and physical being as the explanation of physical reality, the only remaining possible explanation to appeal to would be some sort of non-physical being, or if you like, supernatural. Let's move through it in a slightly different way. Philosophers love putting things in premises and conclusions. Um, The important thing when thinking like this is to recognise that the question is not... um, Am I absolutely certain that that premise is true? The question is, is that premise more plausibly true than false? Um, Just because the logic works by necessity, uh, don't force yourself into thinking that you uh, can't think of the premises in terms of, of probabilities. So premise one, there was, probably, a first physical event. That seems directly entailed by, for example, Big Bang cosmology. That there was a first physical event. There's been a finite series of physical events in the history of everything up until now. Second premise to think about. Every physical event, probably, has a cause. And by saying every physical event has a cause... We can mean that in a very general sense of causation. That every physical event stands in some kind of relationship of causality or dependency to some other reality outside of itself. It may not be a one-to-one causal relation in statistical terms, for example. But that's still a, a causal background that explains what happens. Now, if those two premises are true, there's an entailment. But some people try and get around that, particularly 
by mentioning quantum mechanics at this stage. Does quantum mechanics provide a counterexample to the out-of-nothing-nothing-comes claims? Well, here's an atheist philosopher of quantum mechanics who says not. This is David Albert from his book uh, Quantum Mechanics and Experience. He wrote, and he wrote uh, a review uh, in the New York Times from which this quote comes of Lawrence Krauss's book. And Albert says that um, relativistic quantum field theoretical vacuum states it's quite a mouthful, are particular arrangements of elementary physical stuff. And the fact that some arrangements of fields happen to correspond to the existence of particles, and some don't, is not a whit more mysterious, well maybe it's a whit more mysterious, but here's the analogy, uh, than the fact that some of the possible arrangements of my fingers happen to correspond to the existence of a fist, and some don't. And the fact that particles can pop in and out of existence over time as those quantum fields rearrange themselves is not a whit more mysterious than the fact that a fist can pop in and out of existence over time as my fingers rearrange themselves. And none of these poppings amount to anything even remotely in the neighbourhood of a creation from nothing. Likewise, the atheist writer Raymond Tallis recently said that recent attempts uh, to explain how the universe came out of nothing, which rely on questionable notions such as spontaneous fluctuations in a quantum vacuum, or the notion of gravity as negative energy, and the inexplicable free gift of the laws of nature somehow waiting in the wings for the moment of creation, reveal conceptual confusion beneath mathematical sophistication. So if those first two premises are true, it necessarily follows that, therefore, the first physical event had a cause. But what would that be, one wonders? If the first physical event had a cause, surely it would also be true that the cause of the first physical event can't itself have been a physical cause. I mean, oh, there's a physical event. It's the first physical event. What caused it? Or the previous physical event? Um, Doesn't seem to, to grasp the nature of the term first. But if those two premises are true, then it follows necessarily, in my deductive logic, that therefore the first physical event had a non-physical cause. Because a cause is either a physical thing or not. It's just the law of the excluded middle. Now you can see that we're at least on our way to a concept of something pretty much in the ballpark of the G word. And what about the the structure of reality coming out of that Big Bang? The the famous instances of fine-tuning of the constants and quantities of nature, of the strength of the various forces, uh, lambda, etc., etc. These are well-described elsewhere, and I won't take up your time enumerating examples of them, but the basic idea is that there are various constants and quantities of nature which are fine-tuned in the sense that 
were they to be only very slightly different than they are uh, by uh, people make various uh, analogies of something you're thinking about rulers that stretch across the entire galaxy and if you moved a certain force by what would amount to a millimeter on the ruler then you know the universe wouldn't be life permitting it would have uh, collapsed back in on itself before matter could form, or it would have uh, zoomed off apart from each other far too quickly for matter to coalesce. What do we make of those kind of examples of fine-tuning? Well, we can structure an argument with uh, William Lane Craig, something like this, that the fine-tuning of the universe is due either to, to physical necessity, that could be one explanation, the universe just had to be that way, or chance, it didn't have to be that way, but we struck lucky. Or design. Uh, now, if we can add the second premise that it's not due to physical necessity or chance by a process of elimination, as it were, we can rule in design. I'll also uh, note an argumentative way of, of putting uh, a positive uh, design argument to reinforce this. Back to Stephen Hawking, who says some interesting things in his discussion of this in, in The Grand Design, says, for example, that the fundamental numbers and even the form of the apparent laws of nature are not demanded by logic or physical principle. And so if we agree with Hawking on that one, we can cross out physical necessity, leaving us with chance or design. Uh, well, how would we make that choice in a principled manner? Well, here's an analogy. You see someone entering a sequence of numbers into a cash machine, and it gives them money. Were they lucky, or did they get the money by design? Maybe they had the right card and knew the right PIN number. That is, when we see a contingent event that's complex, that is, that's very unlikely, that also matches an independent, functionally specified pattern, we infer design. It's not just that because we saw something unlikely happen that we're justified in inferring design. Unlikely things happen all the time. It's the combination of complexity and pattern. Bill Craig explains it this way. He says, as the basis for a design inference, in addition to high improbability, there also needs to be a conformity to an independently given pattern. And when these two elements are present, we have what statisticians call specified complexity, which is a tip-off to design. And he gives this example. He says, uh, in a poker game... Any deal of cards is equally and highly improbable. Yeah? You've got the pack of cards. A deal of cards is one possible deal out of the set of all the possible deals. And all of the deals are that one possibility out of that huge number. But if you find that every time a certain player deals, he gets all four aces then you can bet that this is not the result of chance, but of design. Stephen Hawking says that the universe had to be set up in a very special 
and highly improbable way. So that seems to be Hawking saying what amounts to saying that yes, that the fine-tuning of the universe does exhibit this quality of, of specified complexity. But if we take the principle that things exhibiting specified complexity are probably designed, and I once published a, a peer-reviewed philosophy journal article on specified complexity showing that various people who uh, vehemently disagree with intelligent design movement, which is where this uh, discussion of this design criteria mainly comes from, various people who disagree with intelligent design theory nevertheless actually agree and use in their work specified complexity as a design detection criterion. So premise one is not particularly controversial until you start applying it to things that might lead to the conclusion that the fine-tuning of the universe was probably designed. Which is another way of saying we've ruled out chance, but not just by a process of elimination. We've got a positive argument for making that choice between chance or design here. So if the fine-tuning is due either to necessity, chance or design, and it's not due to physical necessity or chance, then it's probably due to design. And if things exhibiting specified complexity are probably the product of design and the fine-tuning of the universe apparently exhibits specified complexity, then it's probably the product of design. Now, the main objection here is, of course, to say something like this. Ah, but if there were enough different universes then the specified fine-tuning of the universe wouldn't be complex enough to justify a design inference. There are enough different universes, therefore. The problem here, of course, is premise two, which is flashing away there in red, to say, I'm problematical, um, because it's not enough in making an objection to a design inference to say, oh, I can imagine circumstances in which that design inference wouldn't be justified. You've got to show that the actual circumstances that we're in are circumstances where that design inference is not justified. In other words, that many universes answer, at the moment at least, is a bit like saying, okay, if X number of chimps existed with enough typewriters for long enough and enough paper, maybe they could type the complete works of Shakespeare by chance. But when I show you a volume of the complete works of Shakespeare, your immediate thought is not, good grief, there's a heck of a lot of chimps somewhere. Your immediate thought is, ah, yes, design. That traces back to an author. Anyone faced with the many chimps hypothesis as an actual explanation for the copy of Shakespeare's works is going to ask this question. Do you have any independent evidence of the existence of X number of chimps with X number of typewriters for X number of years? So the agnostic uh, physicist Paul Davis says, like the proverbial hump in the carpet, the popular multiverse models merely shift the problem elsewhere as well. Here's a, another issue with this multiverse answer. It shifts the problem upper level from the universe to the multiverse because there has to be a universe generating mechanism in a physical theory of multiverses. Why do we have all these different universes? Why are they different to one another rather than identical? There has to be some mechanism that's producing them 
and that mechanism itself would appear probably to be an example of fine-tuning. <laughs> it's fine-tuned at the very least to allow one of the universes that it spits out to be life-permitting, rather than all of the universes it spits out to be life-prohibiting. So when it comes to that interesting issue of the relationship between science and metaphysics, particularly in the whole area of, of natural theology, or arguments for God, you might think along these lines, as I do, that when we're arguing about design detection criteria, we're arguing about what the empirical evidence on the ground is, when we're drawing inferences on that basis, at least according to soft methodological naturalism, we're doing science. But if you want to extend that argument into the realm of metaphysics, if you want to get to the conclusion five, the best explanation of life is at least broadly theistic, if you want to get there from three, you need some sort of justification. There's a missing step in the argument. You can't just leap there. You have to have something like four, some sort of reason to think that the best explanation of three is broadly theistic. You might, for example, say things like, theism offers the simplest mind-first worldview. Theism avoids issues of infinite regress. Um, CF, the cosmological argument, there are other reasons to believe in a god, and so on. Um, but you need step four in order to get reliably to step five. And when you're doing that, you're going beyond science. So, in sum... I've argued that philosophy is not dead. We can keep the department open. Uh, scientism is false, it's self-contradictory, and contradicted by obvious experiences in life. That at least hard methodological naturalism is unwise, I think. That science requires philosophy. That science inevitably raises metaphysical questions that need metaphysical answers one way or another. That I think philosophy can actually warrant a theistic answer to some of the, the metaphysical questions raised by science. And one of the very interesting areas to look at this is where science can provide or, or give justification towards premises in philosophical arguments for theism. So, the slide I showed just a, a moment ago, this is not a scientific argument for theism. It's an argument for theism that includes some premises which have scientific support. But to get to the theism, you have to go beyond science. At least in the way that I have happened to define it. Thank you very much for your attention. If you want to text one in, but uh, do you have any questions before? Yes. Um, I've definitely been watching Brian Cox's latest hmm. TV program and all these uh, things and where everything came from and so on. He, he just simply does a, a, an extension of natural selection. Natural selection doesn't need a designer because natural selection sorts it out automatically. Hmm. Uh, and the same thing with the multiverse, there's lots of universes and 
and the ones that uh, survive are not the ones that we've got, and the others collapse. And you don't need the designer to do that. And he just uses the same principles of natural selection right the way through, which on mm -hmm. the face of it uh, sounds uh, very attractive. Mm. And of course, it, it leads to the question of, okay, well, <laughs> when it all start before the universes came along to be naturally selected from. Yes. I don't know how you would handle that. Yes, well, I, absolutely. I, I certainly agree with you that it, it still leaves in place the question, I mean, the very deep Leibnizian philosophical question of why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there a physical something at all? Um, why is there a physical nothing um, that happens to have a structure such that it's capable of undergoing evolution? Are all questions that are left untouched by simply mentioning a physical thing capable of undergoing evolution. Um, so it doesn't uh, dig far enough down, doesn't get into the metaphysical questions that one would, would want to ask um, about the existence of such a thing. Also, it sounds like, I'm afraid I haven't been watching the particular series, but his, his explanation on the, the sort of fine-tuning and, and un saying universes that, you know, say, collapse too quickly to have life in them so they don't exist anymore, um, ours didn't, so therefore, you know, what is there uh, to explain? Um, well, I think that leaves quite a lot uh, unexplained uh, still. Um, as you say, why is there, if there is some sort of mechanism that's producing different universes, some of which are life-prohibiting, some of which, a minority of which, would be life-permitting, as Paul Davies asks, even, even if there is such a thing, why is it of such a structure that any of the universes it produces are, are life-permitting? Rather than, say, all of them being life-permitting, life why, why does it produce differences at all in the universes it, it produces and so on, all of which points to that initial condition having some kind of some kind of physical reality with a, with a structure which is a, a necessary precondition of life-bearing universes still. So it still raises all those same kind of tuny kind of questions uh, with it, I think. I think you're right about that. It's been very interesting while you've been talking that I think um, a lot of people would expect this to be a discussion about um, maybe religion versus science or something. Mm. But the impression I'm getting is that this is much more about how science relates to philosophy. Now, the impression I've been getting here is that the relationship between science and philosophy um, it sounds a little bit like, um, you know, when you need to take your car to get MOT'd, you know, you, you can drive it for so many years, but then you have to get it checked up, you have to have an engineer look at it and check if it's working properly, check that the, check that the brakes aren't going to go on you or the back isn't going to fall off or whatever. Mm. Um, so in a similar way, I'm getting the impression here that the relationship between science and philosophy is that science almost needs to... Um, subject itself to the judgment or the, um, the maintenance of philosophy. You need philosophers to come along mm -hmm. to check that the scientists are thinking clearly and getting their concepts right uh, every now mm. and then when they're talking about things. So, so, do you think, so what do you think is the proper relationship between mm. science and philosophy 
And if it does have anything like what you might call that sort of MOT type <laughs> relationship, do you think that are there any particular things that we should be on the lookout for or be on our guard against? When we're watching, uh, for example, Brian Cox or, or just any yeah. any scientist talking about talking on these subjects, anything yeah. particular, we just need to keep sharp about. Okay, uh, I interesting set of questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, of course, I, I mean, I, I talked about the way in which what we now call science used to be called natural philosophy and was viewed as as a subdiscipline of philosophy, um, and I'm. I'm very open to viewing it that way still, really. I, uh, uh, it's got its own, its own sort of guild, its own uh, societies, and et cetera, and, and part of that was the whole um, scientists wanting to uh, escape from uh, imperialistic church maintenance during the Enlightenment and, and so on, um, when most natural philosophers were, you know, vicars doing their natural <laughs> bird-watching and so on on their, on their days off. Um, and then uh, science comes out into into its uh, own as a sort of disciplinary area, uh, and wants this sort of sense of, of freedom from philosophy. But that freedom can go too far when it certainly when it reaches into into a, into a scientism that that, that tries to um, uh, retain uh, in its own sort of imperialistic ambitions, as it were, uh, over knowledge. <laughs> Uh, over who gets to talk with authority about things in society uh, and so on, the way in which the, the media when they want an authoritative voice on something will go to a scientist they won't go very, you know, rarely to a philosopher, we might have him on some sort of late night discussion programme where we're talking about the philosophy of travel or wine or something um, very rarely do you, rarely do you get in-depth serious uh, interviews uh, with philosophers about metaphysics uh, on the BBC um, although um, you know, Radio 4 occasionally manages to uh, keep a flag up the pole for that. Um, so yes, I, I think within the discipline of science, of course, scientists have to pay attention to thinking clearly about their concepts and their theories and what they mean by what they're saying and so on. So inevitably, scientists, in that sense, are doing philosophy when they're doing science. <laughs> Because they, you, you know, they're using the laws of logic, so you're doing logic. You know, you're thinking clearly about concepts and what's the difference between my theory and yours and what might be a crucial test that would distinguish between them. That's conceptual thinking. Thinking in terms of consistency, as, as Stenger said and so on, that is an important part of science, of natural philosophy. Um, it's just when uh, you try and abrogate exclusive rights over knowledge to empirical methodologies a la... Richard Dawkins, etc. The only good reason to believe that something is because you've got evidence uh, for it. That kind of narrow scientific view of, of your theory of knowledge, uh, then you can stand a reminder from the epistemologists in the philosophy department that things are a bit more complicated than that, and that actually you're um, sawing off the, the br branch that you're sitting on in order to do your science when you narrow down your view of knowledge uh, in that way. Does that uh, address the, 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 the issue for you, for you, if I...? Oh, yeah, I think that Okay. Got a question from the text. Ooh. If scientism is so clearly self-contradictory, mm. how and why do the new atheists accept that there is, that is their view still hold it? Oh, uh, yes. Well, because they haven't studied philosophy, most of them. Um, but also because... Um, 
back in the early 20th century, in the sort of uh, 20s, 30s, 40s, even into the 50s, um, within philosophy, just in the philosophy itself, there was a movement called logical positivism from folk like August Comte and in uh, Britain in Oxford, A.J. Eyre, uh, whose um, book, uh, Language, Truth and Logic, is occasionally on philosophy syllabi if you happen to be studying philosophy. Uh, and they tried to import into philosophy the, the scientific, empirical methodology of, of knowledge and indeed make it a criterion of the meaning of language. The uh, British analytical uh, philosophy at that time was obsessed with the, the meaning and the use of language and trying to answer the question of, of how do we tell the difference between sense and nonsense in language. And the positivists gave forward a criteria of meaningfulness in language that said language is meaningful if and only if it's either true by definition, so saying, oh, that bachelor is an unmarried man. Well, it's true by definition because of what bachelor means, just a synonym, or um, two plus two equals four, these kind of things, uh, basic rules of logic and so on. Or if, at least in principle, you can empirically verify the language. So if I were to say, oh, the dark side of the moon is made of... Um, Emmerdale cheese. Well, that might be a silly thing to say, but it wouldn't be a nonsense. You understand what I mean. It's meaningful. And it's meaningful because you could test it, at least in principle. Were you to find yourself on the backside of the moon with a spoon, you would know what to do in order to check out my claim, you see. And they said, that's when language is meaningful. Now, this uh, movement died a fairly quick death in philosophy because people soon started asking the question, this statement of this criteria, language is only meaningful if it's true by definition or empirically verifiable, is it true by definition? No. Is it empirically verifiable? No. Why, why should we follow it? Uh, and the um, folks like A.J. Eyre... Uh, dug their heels in and tried various ways of, of getting round those problems, uh, ended up saying things like, well, I, you know, I think if you followed that rule, I'd find it very useful. <laughs> yeah, once. Well, of course he would, but that's not a reason for agreeing with him. Um, so this logical positivist movement really held sway for, for a while in philosophy departments during the early 20th century. When people like A.J. Eyre, Gilbert Ryle... Uh, Strawson uh, were big names in analytical philosophy. People who students did their doctoral work under. Um, people like um, the British philosopher A.C. Grayling, uh, who studied at Oxford under people who'd been big names during the positivist movement. So you can actually trace a line of descent between that Oxford positivism of the early 20th century and folks within the new atheism who did their doctoral studies under people who were big names in the positivist movement at Oxford in the middle to uh, late middle 20th century who still have this kind of positivist viewpoint on things. Uh, although they haven't gone back to the philosophy departments to notice that no one is a logical positivist anymore for good reason. Um, so they're, they're, they're carrying on an intellectual tradition that they kind of picked up in the atmosphere of early 20th century Oxford, which is now dead, 
except for in the New Atheist movement. Yeah, yes, sir. Um, slightly school question. I'm going to pick devil's advocate. Please do. Um, kind of begs a question then. So, so who, who created God? Mm. Uh, and why is that not just shifting the problem back to the same Yeah. Okay, good question. So this is the... And Dawkins sees this as the, the main objection in, in, in the God delusion. To say, well, if you posit a God in order to explain the universe... I could just ask, well, what explains God? So you've just given a more complicated explanation rather than a simplifying explanation, and that's what we're, we should be after. So two things. Note that the, the arguments that I gave, both from the fine-tuning and from the, the Kalam cosmological-type argument that I gave, only got to the conclusion, therefore we've got reason to think that the the physical universe was caused by something supernatural outside of it that it depends upon. Now, to that kind of argument, I don't think it's particularly an an objection to say, ah, but what caused that? I mean, if if that were a good enough reason for not believing an explanation, then science itself would be very difficult. We posit some unseen entity to explain a set of data that we have, we usually take that as being a good reason if it explains it well and better than competitors and so on. And, and someone who comes along and says, oh yes, but you, it, what you need to do is give me an explanation of your explanation. Well, if you would always had to have an explanation of your explanation before you could accept the explanation, and you applied that rule consistently, you have to have an explanation of the explanation of the explanation of the explanation of the, and you'd be into one of those infinite regress problems. So actually, it's a, if you want to apply that sword, it's going to cut both ways. But then, of course, traditionally within um, both philosophical theology in the, the mere concept of God and the tradition of, of arguing for God, you can extend, particularly in the cosmological argument, the whole nub of the issue in cosmological arguments tend to be this thing of, of, is it possible for there to be an actual infinite regress of explanations? Or is that something to be avoided? If it's to be avoided, that means that somewhere in our series of explanatory posits, we have to have something that explains without needing explanation. Um, And, of course, the the traditional concept of God is of the, the unmade maker, the necessarily existent being, rather than a contingent being, an independent rather than dependent being. Um, because the, the nub here, some people will come back and say, well, if you're, if you're going to say that about God, well, he, he's just the kind of thing that doesn't need an explanation, why can't we say that about the cosmos? Why not say with Bertrand Russell, I know, I just say the universe is there and that's all. As Bertrand Russell said. Well, it's because... The universe is a physical thing with a series of events in causal relationships where there's a first one, (laughs) Uh, which directly seems to imply that there's a cause beyond physical reality. Now you're in a discussion, does that cause beyond physical reality, is that the kind of thing that needs a cause or not? Well, if it is, well, that's not God as we conceive it, but in terms of the question of infinite regress, is that possible? If you say no, 
you're going to have at some stage to get back to some kind of non-physical thing that doesn't need causing. Your only alternative is to embrace an actual infinite regress of explanations, which we avoid in, in all other um, areas. Um, so I think there are, there are philosophical arguments for saying there has to be some kind of being who, whose nature must be such that we don't require things outside of it to explain it if we're going to explain physical contingent type realities. Um, so it's not just a sort of ad hoc, oh, um, you know, oh, I don't need to explain my God, but you do need to explain your, your universe. Um, there are principled reasons why that is the case, I think. I didn't quite get the bit where you're explaining why it was design rather than chance. Okay. The universe is complex. I didn't quite understand why it was specifically mm. complex. Um, it seems to me we maybe it's quite possible we interpret it as being so. You know, you mm. get a sheet of manuscript and it's just nonsense, but because we live in it, we see shapes in it. Right. Yes. Are we? Or um, you know, if we look at the clouds for long enough, you can kind of say, "Oh, that cloud looks a bit like a dragon." Um, you interpret things as having. Uh, a, a meaning or a specificity that they don't inherently have we're kind of projecting upon them but then what, where is that meaning that we're projecting coming from are we as, as unspecific and unmeaningful as the cloud as it were where do you trace back that projection to so there, there does seem to be a, a meaningfulness a specificity about life and it's, it's in terms of the fine tuning it's, it's specific in the sense that we have these contingent values, constants laws and so on that we think could have been different and indeed part of the whole multiverse theory, answer to the fine tuning assumes that universes are contingent things that can be different but given that they're contingent things that can be different, and we, we know this one is here, why is it this way? As you say, it's not just that we have a, an unlikely set of laws and constants, because, yes, any set of laws and constants would be unlikely. So the crucial question is, is the set of laws and constants, the unlikely set things that we know does exist, is it independently specified in some way? Or are we, are we doing what we would be doing if we... Well, um, William Dembski uses this analogy when he's, he's making the distinction between specifications and what he calls fabrications. And says, um, imagine you, know, you see a, there's a big wall and an arrow flies through the air, bang, hits the wall. And someone walks up to the wall on the arrow with a paintbrush, pot of paint, and draws a circle around it stands back and says, look, what a great archer I am. I hit the target. You would say, no, that's, that's a fabrication. You've just read into what actually did happen. You've taken what actually you have observed and made that at your specification just because you observe it. That's a fabrication. But if we saw a target on a wall and then the arrow flew through the air and hit the target we would know it was by design rather than by luck, probably, because that's a 
specification rather than a, a fabrication. And, and the crucial thing that Dembski hits on is saying um, you don't that the the rejection region, as it were, doesn't need to be uh, can be can be set independently of what you observe. Um, so the fine tuning. Different constants, different tunings and ratios of those laws. The majority of those tunings and ratios, the scientists tell us, would produce life-prohibiting universes. Uh, Things that would perhaps, the majority, not even include matter coalescing into existence. There's only a very small subset of the ways things could be tuned that are life-permitting. Uh, and it's not, and we, we know that from, from analysing the, the concepts of these laws and what the results would be, not simply from just looking at reality and, you know, sort of drawing an X marks the spot on what happens to be here. Mm. That's a fabrication. Like that's a, probably the best example of scientific hubris. I mean, it's the idea that these laws, you know, act in a certain way and that it would always be thus. It just seems the, the, whether we could tell if it was fabrication or specificity just completely beyond any potential for our comprehension. And to say that um, because of the laws we have for these things to work, it would have to be this way. Mm. Who says it would be those laws or any of these things or even matter as we know? Like, Oh well, yeah. But this is this is purely an argument of in in terms of the the the, the laws of physics as we know them, putting in different numbers to the constants or different numbers of those laws that we know, you know, taking laws away or whatever, within the range of possibilities on that basis, the minority are life permitting and the majority life prohibiting. If you then want to ask about the sort of imponderable of, well, what about other kinds of realities that are not physical, but they are contingent realities and I, I don't know, are laws but aren't laws as we know them and sort of not even sure quite what we're talking about, but even if you want to grant those in, imponderables, nevertheless, we have the reality that, of which we do know in which there is this, this specificity of the life permitting versus the life prohibiting. I mean, is, that's enough for you to say, or enough for you to think that it's specificity and not uh, yeah. the fabrication, because well, it doesn't seem like it is to me. Uh, well, even, even if you imagine these, these other realities, whatever they are, if you, if you think of them like A4 pages that have got lots of dots on them, a dot equals life permitting, a blank is life prohibiting. The set of laws that we know about seems to produce a piece of paper that's mainly blank and has a few dots on. Put that up on the wall. Then imagine that there are loads of other kinds of reality somehow where the pieces of paper representing them will be full of dots. So it's not really unlikely that they could have life within them if, if one of those realities becomes a reality for some reason. Stick those bits of paper up all over the wall as well. So we've got a wall covered in dots, except for one page of which, which is mainly blank, except for a few dots. An arrow flies through the air, and it hits a dot. But it hits a dot on the mainly blank page. Design or luck? I think the natural 
inference would be that that was by design. I mean, I, I get, it seems to me that reading the importance of life as life as being what this is all about, we've got life, so that must show something. I mean, it's the same kind of thing we read onto, you know, we've got human beings. That was what the aim of it all was, when we got to human uh, beings. Well, but be, yes. Life is just one of the <laughs> things of the universe. It's, the universe isn't there to support life. Well, maybe, maybe it is, I don't know. Well, maybe not or not, but, but we could talk in terms of the fine-tuning. I mean, I, haven't even, I didn't specifically even talk in terms of, of human life or intelligent life. No, you, you seem to be <laughs> suggesting life is some sort of kind of great lucky accident. But, you know, who, who, what would be the other lucky accident that we missed? Yeah. Well, within, within the kind of laws that we know, the other, the other lucky accidents would be life-prohibiting universes that probably don't have co complex chemistry in them, probably don't have matter in them, let alone chemistry, let alone organic chemistry, let alone life, let alone our kind of life. So it's not that I'm, I'm picking out our kind of life as a specification even. It, it is broader than that, just to have anything interesting as it were, in scientific terms, any uh, interacting physical reality uh, that lasts more than a nanosecond or whatever, uh, it's still fine-tuned in, in, in that sense. And we could then, yes, go on to arguments about, well, if it is designed for a purpose, is it, you know, what was the idea in the designer's mind, that we have our kind of life specifically, or that he just likes life in general, just he, maybe he likes organic chemistry, maybe he just likes chemistry. Um, <laughs> if, if it follows, once you have chemistry that you get, you get these kind of things, well, he'd have to put up with it, presumably. Um, those whole discussions about what more precisely was the, is the design, is the intentionality behind it, might be very hard to read simply off the data of fine-tuning. But I, but I think what's not implausible to read off it is that we're here, is that this universe is here by intention rather than simply by luck or by some kind of, well, things had to be that way. That, that would be all the argument would, would dare reach for, I think. I think it's in combination with other arguments um, that one starts building up a picture that makes a broadly theistic interpretation of, of that data the most plausible but again that's that's downstream in terms of the philosophy and the, the theology of the thing I think why is there just to repeat for the recordings a increase in this popularity of scientism It's a little hard to say. So I think I would point to the, uh, the verificationism of analytic philosophy in the early 20th century, having a big impact on a generation of that kind of the impressiveness of science kind of um, being drawn into a sort of a bit of a philosophy envy of the scientists. We want to, you know, we want to have a proper discipline and we want to, you know, science is very impressive. We want to follow in its footsteps and <coughs> philosophy is the the handmaiden of, of science, as it used to be with theology. John Locke, the British philosopher, once described himself as the, the, the underworker of the scientists, like Newton and so on, clearing away the under, undergrowth so that the scientists could do their thing of understanding reality. 
Um, so this kind of thinking has deep historical roots. Um, media culture certainly seems to perpetrate it. How it got into perpetrating it, I, I don't know. Um, have to go and ask someone in the sociology of media studies or something. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sure I can, I can give you a definitive uh, knock-on-the-head answer uh, to that, really, but I can certainly point to some influences uh, upon it. Um, and in terms of the, the, the new atheist movement, I mean, it, it's, it's undoubted that, that what gave that a huge public push uh, was um, the, um, the jet attacks in America on 9-11 in 2001. Uh, Sam Harris began writing his first book um, as you know, he saw those events happen. Um, it became a, a surprise bestseller. Um, there was clearly a public appetite for critiques of religion um, from an angle of people who were saying we need to be rational and that means being scientific and empirical about things and that gives us a, a sort of stick with which to beat religious viewpoints and sort of win a culture war uh, and other publishers jumped on that bandwagon um, with you know, Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and so on who had best-selling books in that, in that oeuvre um, so the market pounded to, to a, a popular desire for that kind of material uh, clearly and I think another driver of that partly is um, the way in which atheists feel somewhat oppressed as a minority, particularly within American culture, um, where uh, religion is much, much, much more tied in with the whole kind of political process uh, and you've got a, a much wider segment of society, at least nominally Christian and going to churches and things um, and not having the best relationships always or the best approach to their atheist neighbours and those people getting a sense of, of, of community and of voices speaking for them within the media. Um, so I think, I think partly uh, you know, uh, Christians have themselves to blame for it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Uh, there is a initial thing creating this uh, universe, creating our real world. Uh, can this thing uh, affect our real world? Uh, if, uh, if it has some uh, influence on everyone, uh, can this influence be uh, measured? If this thing can be measured, why mm. do we call that unnatural thing? Why, why, why it isn't a physical thing? Oh, right. Okay, so if the, if the creator of the universe can have a measurable influence upon it, why don't we count it as a physical reality? Um... You certainly could, on the, I mean, if we're on the basis, one way of going with the fine-tuning evidence would be to say, um, you know, maybe this is all a science project of some uh, embodied physical alien intelligence in a parallel universe <laughs> who's set up some universe-making machine in their scientific advancement, twiddle the knobs, press go, they're making universes. So even the occasional... Uh, interesting philosopher who thinks our reality might be a virtual computer simulation being run on some lab bench somewhere and so on. Those are certainly ideas that are compatible with the idea of design uh, and they're non-supernaturalistic ideas. Uh, but then you raise the question, so the designer you posit, does that designer 
not include some specified complexity. If they're physical embodied designer, it would seem highly plausible to think that that designer would, would exhibit some specified complexity. But specified complexity, in our experience, is an indicator of design. So does that designer need a designer? And does the designer need a designer need a designer? And actually, you, you get, it, you get it onto the track of thinking, well, the only way of escaping another infinite regress of explanations in terms of physically embodied designers is, at some point, to appeal to a designer who doesn't exhibit specified complexity. Now, God, as traditionally conceived, doesn't exhibit specified complexity because he doesn't exhibit any complexity in the sense that he's a necessarily existent being who necessarily has his uh, character qualities be what they are, uh, not as a matter of contingent chance. Um, so if there's a God, by definition, such a being would escape the need of specified complex things to be explained in terms of other intelligences outside of themselves. Um, and you can see that, that that runs parallel to the whole cosmological argument about the nature of physical reality anyway. Are physical realities by nature contingent things that in some sort of have to depend upon something outside of themselves? And since we now know that even if our Big Bang wasn't the first one, there was a beginning to physical reality, that again seems to imply the existence of, of, of a reality that has causal power but that is not physical. And again, if that's, although it's not physical, still contingent, you're into an infinite regress until you get to something that is not contingent. Um, and it just so happens that this is the traditional idea of God as the unmade maker, the necessarily existent being of Anselm, etc. Um, this is what God has always been thought of to be. Thanks. One more question? This is going to take me a bit to put okay. the words and get complicated, but in Hinduism, mm. the belief is that the creation, what we mean by that, is the, the universe, the earth, and life, came into being first, and then God came into being after. So that mm. God is actually an earthbound spirit, if you want to call it. Mm -hmm. That is very much concerned with human affairs and morality. Mm. Now, in the West, it to me appears we just can't cope with that. We've always got to sort of get some sort of control over things. So we can't cope with science saying, you know, there's this big bang. We don't yet know how that happened. At the moment, we say there was nothing there, all these arguments that there was matter, and it was just gravity holding it together. We don't know about there might be infinite universes, it might be just like a process of natural selection. We don't yet know about this kind of universe generator. So what we're doing is we're getting all our kind of um, God kind of hairs going mm -hmm. on like this and saying we've got to get our sort of paws into all this one and try and explain it in terms of God. But in a sense, there's no real need to do that and it could be just a kind of wanting control, like as a battle mm. between science and philosophy. Mm. Like, when, like in Victorian times, 
they took great offence really to Darwin because it kind of threatened their hegemony over the idea that the church thing was like the, troop, the one the great troop. Okay, I, I just start if I may by addressing that what might be a side issue in that about, about the, the church and, and Darwin uh, in, in Darwin's day. Um, that I, I think the historical picture is a lot more complex than that in as much as a lot of the church, particularly the English church, readily accepted uh, Darwin's ideas, um, buried him in Westminster Chapel when he died and so on, much to the chagrin of Aldous Huxley and his friends, uh, who did want to use Darwinism as a, as a lever in the, in the church science as an institution battle, but not necessarily, you know, that's not the same thing as the science-religion uh, battle uh, as such, um, and um, certainly people, even American authors like Charles Kingsley and so on, readily embraced uh, Darwin's ideas and incorporated that within their Christianity, so I think it's a little bit more complex than that, but the, the, the main issue you're, you're raising is I think I could say, well, of course, in terms of having uh, philosophical arguments for a theistic viewpoint that have premises that have scientific support, by the very nature of the case, those premises are not going to be supported with absolute certainty. Uh, and I, I particularly highlighted that in, in the talk. So it is always going to be open for us to say, as we can say of any th scientific theory, that is revisable. <coughs> in the light of new data and understanding and so on, we might be wrong about that. Um, we have, at the moment, to work with the best data that we have uh, whilst recognising that we might be wrong. Um, so, yes, I'm, I'm happy to say these arguments that I've given are not airtight knockdown proofs. I think they're interesting parts of the cumulative case for God. I think it's interesting that science in the last 50 years has made a series of discoveries that seem much more naturally compatible with a theistic worldview, of, a worldview where there's some sort of external to the universe supernatural reality, at least, um, than other worldviews, um, such as the, the one you describe, and the way in which scientists fought a rearguard action against Big Bang cosmology because of its theological overtones. Um, discoveries within... Um, you know, the DNA code, uh, machinery of the cell, etc., etc. And that that case is part of a cumulative case for God goes alongside more purely philosophical arguments, like the ontological argument that I mentioned, or the moral, metaphysical moral argument, or um, uh, cosmological arguments about contingency and dependency, quite apart from questions of did the universe have a beginning or not. This kind of series of dependency questions about this kind of series of dependency why do physical things exist here and now rather than not why is there something rather than nothing and so on as Leibniz asked so it's I've purely given us this evening a, a, a sort of taster of a, a slice of the cumulative case for theism that happens to be a slice that 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 intersects with contemporary scientific discoveries in an interesting way um, and I would not put all my eggs in that basket. Uh, it's not a knockdown basket, but I certainly think that they are very interesting pointers 
particularly when considered in, in light of the, the rest of the arguments, um, which may uh, address some of the distinctions between other, uh, other worldviews. Um, certainly, I mean, within a, a traditional pantheistic worldview where, where God and the world are one, the idea that the world has a beginning seems quite awkward. Uh, the idea that that beginning has a structure that on commonsensical grounds that we use in lots of other fields of science would point towards an intelligence beyond itself but that that structure is there from a beginning uh, seems to point towards a theistic rather than a pantheistic uh, kind of a worldview and so on um, but these kind of arguments from science and so on certainly don't, don't get you to what are the most, you know, what specifically is the designing intention of the designer and is he interested in us necessarily? Or what is his moral character, if any? Um, and so on. Um, but they're interesting uh, elements of the case that I think cumulatively points in a theistic direction. That's what I, I'd say. Uh, and you may or may not agree, but I hope I've given you some. Uh, useful tidbits and lines of investigation uh, and let me uh, just indulge in one last bit of uh, self-publication on the, the books here particularly the, the book Faithful Guide to Philosophy has a number of chapters that relate to the subject tonight because there's a chapter on here on the design arguments, there's a couple of chapters a chapter in here on cosmological and the Kalam cosmological argument chapters in here on the relationship between science and theology chapters in here on the nature of um, rationality uh, and scientism gets a, a mention so there's quite a lot in this book that uh, over, uh, overlaps with what I've been talking about tonight um, they're only a tenor but for free you can go on my website and I've got a podcast channel a YouTube video channel and so on and that's all freely available uh, just log online to um, peterswilliams.com uh, it's somewhat in, in the process of being built but things are being added on a regular basis so I hope you find that, that useful as well Thank you very much, Peter. Um, Thank you. Before we go, I'll just point out again, we do have our term cards. If you want to find out more about our future events, you can look to our Facebook, etc. And we've got some booklets for free, which are produced by Christians in Science. Um, but yeah, if we could just show our appreciation to Peter Monaster. Thanks very much.